you're going to laugh at me when I do this. So I'm going to try again. Okay. Okay. Mala. Mala. <laughs> Fill up Ron Burgundy. <laughs> my name is James Hill and welcome to MISC, a podcast series of my interesting snappy chats with successful people about the themes, ideas and experiences that challenge them. Our guest today is Annabelle Williams. Annie has captained the Australian swim team, broken five world records and won numerous medals for Australia, including gold at the London 2012 Paralympic Games. Annie is a lawyer as well as a swimmer and was the legal counsel for the Australian Olympic Committee. She has worked for the Court of Arbitration for Sport and was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for Service to Sport. She's also been Charlize Theron's stunt double in Mad Max 4 Fury Road, but we'll get to that later. Annie is currently the Vice President of the Board of Paralympics Australia. I confess this is round two of trying to record this podcast. A couple of weeks ago, Annie came round and we spoke for a few hours. We were amazing. Hilarious. We, we were super funny. You're just going to have to take our <laughs> word for it. And then at the end of the evening, I think Annie saw my face and she said, it didn't record, did it? And it didn't. But um, testament to your kindness uh you agreed to come back for a round two um now a lot of people say sequels aren't as good as the original not in this case no i reckon we're going to be more godfather 2 <laughs> more toy story 2 more emperor strikes back definitely than home alone 2 because that was terrible oh it's terrible but it's nice to see you thank you very much for joining great to see you james to be honest it is my absolute pleasure to come back we're in the middle of covid it is an escape from the house is more than welcome so No drama. What have you been doing for the last two weeks? What have you been watching? (laughs) So much Queer Eye. I love that show. Like all four seasons, to be honest. Who gave you permission? You did. (laughs) It's a great recommendation. Amazing. (laughs) I was was thinking about this. I I listed all of your, well, not even all of your accomplishments at the beginning, and I've just about got my breath back. There's a lot of them. Um, And I just didn't know where to start with asking you questions because you've achieved so much as an athlete, but you've also achieved so much out of the pool as well. But I thought I'd start with swimming. Sounds good. It, it sounds like a good place to jump <laughs> in. Uh, how did swimming find you or how did you find swimming? Well, de- swimming definitely found me. So I actually, I grew up for a few years in Jakarta, in Indonesia for my dad's work. And in such a hot climate, everyone swam, all the expats yeah. swam. And so I took up swimming then when I was probably about seven Um and I liked it well enough, but I also did tons, like, you know, I participated in lots of different sports. I ran, I did cross country, I played tennis, I played yeah. basketball. Um, and and then when we moved back to Australia, a lot of my sw- friends were had started doing squads as well. And so I went along with them. So I, I had swum for, you know, a long time, but I, I really, my, my absolute love was athletics. Yeah. My mum had been a very good runner. She was a hurdler. What was your discipline? 400 metre track. Yeah. Um, but my mum had been a hurdler and she was incredible. She was a national sort of champion and, and was on track actually to make the Australian team, but sustained an injury. She jumped in a river and got glass in her foot, which sort oh, of, no. yeah, completely stopped her sporting career, but she was an incredible athlete. And I think because she had been so good, that was always what I wanted to pursue. I always wanted to be uh, do athletics. Um, and I was on track to qualify for the 2004 Athens Paralympics um, in the 400. And yeah. when I was about maybe 18 months before the Games, I think wow. it was, 
I developed stress fractures in both of my shins. Yeah. And um, I feel like at the time it was very traumatic because... I was going to ask, how did you feel? Because yeah, how old would you have been? Six, six, 14. 14. Wow. Yeah, 14. <laughs> I know. I took it all very seriously very young, didn't I? I uh, yeah, so I would have been... I would have been 15 at the yeah. games, I suppose, had yeah. I gone. But it was kind of the first time. I mean, of course, growing up with a disability, yeah. I had always had to overcome yes. challenges. Yeah. And for the audience, I'm missing my left hand and forearm and was born that way. So, I've, you know, from day one, I've had obstacles to overcome, challenges to face. and But it was really the first time that I remember desperately wanting something and there was just a complete roadblock. Like the doctors yeah. just said to me, there's no way you can run and you may not be able to run for years and yeah. And also I was dealing with a lot of pain. Stress fractures are incredibly painful. Huh. So um, so I I found that really hard. But I had also still continued swimming because all my friends did it and yeah. I used to represent the school and things like that. So one of my teachers suggested that while I couldn't run, why didn't I just increase the amount of training I did for swimming? Yeah. And so I did that. But I remember thinking swimming <laughs> – I decided at that point that swimming was the worst sport in the world for uh-huh. someone who – was as chatty as I was. Yeah. I used to get in trouble all the time from my coach because all I wanted to do was talk and it became apparent fairly quickly that that wasn't possible underwater. Yeah, which, only in the movies. <laughs> yes, right, exactly, <laughs> which frustrated him to no end. Yeah. Um, but I really started to fall in love with racing and I actually think that I was more naturally talented at swimming than I was at athletics. I think I'd yeah. sort of always wanted to train really hard and I wanted to be like my mum and yeah. so that's why I pursued athletics. But actually swimming came more naturally. Yeah. And so I started uh, I started training, you know, a lot. And swimming, I mean, really you have to train to be competitive and at an elite level, most swimmers train twice a day every day. And so I started, well, not quite doing that, but I started training a lot more and competing yeah. and I really started to enjoy it and I started making a lot of friends in the swim club and um, and then at one national championships, the head coach of the Australian team saw me and yeah. said that I had a chance of making the Australian team if you know I, if I continued, and so that sounded like a good proposition. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did, and I never really looked back. Um, do you, do you think that was like, that was a, an element of the competitor in you? Was the dream of competing at a games still there that drives you? Was it was it was it love of swimming or? I think it was – no, I think it was the love of racing in yeah. the pool. I don't know what it was about. I think it was – I know this sounds a bit funny, but I think with athletics I used to get distracted because I could see the other competitors. Yeah. Whereas with swimming, I did – butterfly was my main stroke. And yeah. it, it, I quite liked the solid – I know a lot of people hate this part of, yeah. of sport and this is why a lot of people would much rather do team sport. Mm. But I like the idea that it's all up to you and you're in your own head and you're racing against yourself and – you know, and that sort of really internal process. Yeah. And I and I think also I just – I think because I was more naturally a swimmer than a runner, yeah. I never did that as well in athletics as I ended up doing in swimming. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not sure if I would have made the team in 2004 for athletics. I was yeah. certainly on, on, the, on that path yes. and I'd hoped to, but I may well not have. Whereas swimming um, – and I think because I started doing well relatively quickly, yeah. that also, you know, I really loved to win. I think yeah, it's, it's probably the competitive nature yeah. in me. And I always have been yeah. pretty competitive um, and very driven. And I think that probably came from, I, I mean, to be honest, probably when I was young, I felt this need to prove that having a disability was not going mm. to limit me. And so I 
probably overcompensated in a lot of ways and one of those the way one of those ways that it was borne out was through competition um and and in sport and I also felt you know I didn't compete in I didn't compete against other athletes with a disability until I was older I used to compete against able-bodied athletes and I felt and and I was still competitive against them and I felt like you know, I sort of the disability disappeared a little bit. I didn't, yeah. You know, when I was sure. competing, and if I could, if I could beat people, even though I had one arm, then yeah. the disability wasn't that that big a deal, I guess. Yeah, and would, did that lead to kind of like confidence, confidence in the pool as an athlete, but confidence outside of the pool as well? Yes, or, I think so. I think it probably did. I mean, I, I was always very athletic, and so sport, sport, and I, and I mean, it really wasn't until I was. I guess 15 that I started solely focusing on swimming because I I had to but I'd always done all sports had given me a lot of confidence. I remember actually in Jakarta I was I played basketball. I was the only girl on our team and the only person with a disability and I remember our team were the Boston Celtics and I remember thinking huh. Gosh, are we like an offshoot of the actual Boston Celtics? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, how you wonderful! Giants, you were <laughs> <laughs> I remember being quite confused because we had the same uniforms, yeah. which I now realise as a lawyer was possibly a trademark infringement. <laughs> but I, yeah, so interviewed I'm... in the Last Dance, <laughs> that, that documentary. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly the MJ documentary. I'm wondering why I haven't been asked about the. <laughs> Offshoot Academy that was in Jakarta. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so even being you know part of all of these different teams and all the sports I did, I did tennis quite competitively, and I think all of those things gave me a lot of comp- uh, uh, confidence. Yeah. Um, probably the endorphin rush. I had a lot of friends who did sport. Um, my my family is very um, athletic and sporty, and you know that was just. I, I I just really loved it, and I think that sort of the confidence came naturally because I was just quite you know um, athletic in nature. I mean, certainly I wasn't. I was losing far more tennis matches than I was winning, but um, the enjoyment that I got from it, I think, gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah, you mentioned um, swimming as a solitary um, pursuit or sport, and you said you quite enjoyed racing against yourself as well. Um, did you ever feel like a lot of pressure as well on your shoulders? Even as, even if you are a member of a you know a relay team, mm. I guess when you're in that lane, the pressure's all on your shoulders. Did that ever affect you negatively? Or- I think. I mean, there certainly is a lot of pressure. In in one sense, I really like that. I like the fact that you're relying. You only have to rely on yourself. And I think because I'm self motivated and and have always been like that, I. Um, I kind of back myself. I actually remember thinking this, this is going to be, this is a strange digression and I will get back to the point. <laughs> but I remember when I had my daughter and being in labor, a lot of, I know there's a lot of fear and, you know, everyone said to me like, oh my gosh, it's the, you know, it's horrible and it's so scary. And I remember thinking, actually, this is, I remember one, a, a fellow swimmer who had had children, she said to me, it's actually kind of like doing an anaerobic threshold set in swimming. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of it, there's eight of you in a row. <laughs> <laughs> just in different rooms yeah. but she said it's kind of it's like incredibly intense when it, you know when you're having contractions and then you get a rest and then it's incredibly intense and, you know. and I remember feeling I, I was this is a funny very strong visual that I had but we were living in you know west in Sydney in a suburb called Annandale and we were traveling to the lower north shore and we so we had to cross the harbour bridge and I remember as I was going over the bridge I had this very strong visual of like every female I knew was like lining the harbour bridge like clapping me like you got this like you can do it <laughs> and I remember feeling like okay I've got all these supporters of people thinking like you know um yeah. we sort of believe in you and I yeah. and it was 
and also I was very, I, then I was kind of not excited, but I was interested to see how I could manage it myself yeah. and, and how m- mentally I could cope with the, 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 the challenge. I know yeah. that sounds a bit funny, but yeah. I, that also is how I felt about swimming. I, yeah. I very much, you know, before competitions, I, was extremely nervous, um, but it was a huge amount of adrenaline and I felt like it was a really good opportunity to harness all the training. I think it is amazing how you can tell your – you can trick your mind. I mean I had periods of time when I was swimming where I had quite bad injuries um, with my shoulders yeah. and so it meant I had to have times out of the water. But whenever – you know, which meant that obviously I couldn't train as hard as my competitors, mm. but whenever we got to a swimming competition, I would convince myself that I had done more work than any other person yeah. who was in any other lane, which was of course not the truth, <laughs> but I, I made myself believe it. Um, so I think that I did a lot of, you know, mindfulness, I suppose, yeah. and I was able to visualise a lot of things and, and I actually um, I thrived on that sort of the, the challenge of the individual pursuit. Yeah. And even though swimming is an individual sport, I never, ever felt like I was just doing it on my own. I used to always think, you know, who's who's with me on this journey and it was like my coach my teammate my family my friends and I used to think about those people a lot in the marshalling area before we went on to pool deck and then with the relay the relay and I so uh, the gold medal I won was as a member of the relay and it was my last race ever for Australia at the London Paralympics. And I think maybe it's an indication that I would have possibly enjoyed team sports more than individual (laughs) sport, but I guess it came too late. I really felt like the pressure was not on me at all. I just wanted to do it for the team. Like I wanted to race as well as I possibly. I didn't feel worried about the place or the time or anything like that. It was just this excited desire to do as well as I possibly could for all four of us. And I think that's how everyone kind of approached it. And that relay team, that was the most amazing. I mean, I feel like it's quite, um, it's almost quite symbolic. So all of us, the four of us have disabilities. One of the girls lost her leg to cancer when she was six. Two of them had cerebral palsy. I'm missing my arm. And we had for so many years, our whole life for most of us, um, we have had many occasions when people have suggested that things are not possible or that, mm. you know, maybe we couldn't do things. And I remember we were ranked fifth going into that relay. Mm. And even our coaches said to us, you've got a really outside chance for even a minor medal, but good luck. And I remember one of the girls said to us, said to the the other three, you know, I reckon we could do this. Like this is not impossible. And it was kind of – and we walked out on a pool deck and in reality the, the chance of us meddling, let alone winning, was incredibly slim. But it was almost like these four girls who have been told many times they couldn't do something and there was, you know, no expectation and or, or there was an expectation that we wouldn't be able to do something really were then ultimately able to and it was sort of this power of the 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 team dynamic. And I think there's in some things and, you know, in swimming we look at statistics and data and we use all of those things to make assessments on how well we'll do and what we should change. But then I think there's also this sort of element of hope and drive and desire and, you know, the power of our minds to believe that we were capable of more than what people thought of us. Yeah. Um, and that was a very emotional 
moment. I mean, we we won by 0.03 of a second and actually James, the Brits, came second and it was very (laughs) rewarding beating the Brits at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, as as we were saying before, London was the only only Olympics I've seen live. Yeah. But I I watched um, the video of the moment that you won that Mm. and you were looking up at the screen. Yeah. (laughs) And it just looks magical. It must have been a magical moment to win, win gold. For you, for you, your team, but your country as well. Yeah, oh, it was it was the most incredible. So I'd actually competed earlier that night in the hundred meter freestyle yeah. final and did not do as well as I had hoped. But I um, and was disappointed with that race. And actually, I think that that fueled me a little bit. I felt quite. I, fe- I remember feeling a little bit annoyed, like a little yeah. bit angry actually, yeah. that I had not swum as well as I'd wanted yeah. to in that race. And, um, but also it gave me the opportunity to, to see where my family and friends were sitting in the stands and, and fortuitously they had these incredible seats that were basically on the finish line and only about 10 rows back. Yeah. And there were 40 or 50 people, like I had, there were, I had a lot of friends who were living yeah. in the UK at the time. Um, and, and so I'd seen where they were, which then meant it made it all the more special when we won this gold medal. Cause I could look up and I could almost actually talk to them and, yeah. but it wasn't really, I mean. The look in their faces must have been incredible. Oh yeah, yeah. The actually, um, one of we were doing an interview with the ABC right afterwards, and uh, and and some of my friends were so close to the location where the interview was taking place. You can you can hear one of my girlfriends in the background yelling out, "We're going to be drinking champagne tonight." <laughs> <laughs> Thinking this is not the elite athlete image I'm hoping to portray. But I so I was the third swimmer in that relay, and. Um, and so there's four swimmers in the relay and, and, and I was absolutely exhausted when I hit the wall and I sort of pulled myself up out the side. And when you're down on pool deck, you have very little spatial perception. So it's when swimmers are swimming away from you, as they were, the four freestyle swimmers were swimming away from uh, where I was, I couldn't tell where we were placed, but I knew I dived in the pool about third. Yeah. And so I looked at the big screen at the back of the pool and I got really confused and I thought that we were Canada who were actually in the lane next to us and Canada were coming eighth. Yeah. And so I thought to myself, oh, my God, like I'm a disgrace to my country. <laughs> what that, what has gone wrong? Race was disappointing for you. <laughs> right. No, I honestly thought what has gone wrong tonight? Yeah. Like this is the yeah. – this is so disappointing. I, I knew we were in third place. Yeah. I've gotten the, the country into eighth place. Yeah. And so I slowly meandered around to the uh, – behind the block where the other two girls were. And one of the girls, who was the one who had lost her leg to cancer when she was six and is incredibly positive all the time, she turned around to me and said, I reckon we could get a medal. And I remember thinking, you are literally the most positive person I've ever met in my life. I was like, there's no way. I mean, we're coming eighth. And so I was just sort of looking at her thinking, you're nuts, and and sort of standing back. And then it wasn't actually until Jackie had only 25 metres to swim that I realised, oh, my God, we're actually – in equal first place with, th- admittedly, three other countries, so we very easily could have come fourth. But I, I realised that we, oh no, we're actually really in it with a shot here. And and I you know I always had imagined that if I won a gold medal, which was sort of something I dreamed of since I was young, that I would have this reaction that was like those people who win Academy Awards, like very excited but also very contained and like humble i was not like that at all i was like a banshee whaler there are images on the internet that should be removed forever (laughs) the look on my face i mean i went berserk and then uh and then actually i remember thinking when jackie hit the wall and we looked up and saw that we'd come first there's i I reached down and grabbed jackie's hand and i 
in the, I very clearly remember thinking to myself, I'm going to pull her up out the side of the pool. And then I remember realizing or remembering, no, that's not a good idea because I only have one hand and her disability is in her legs. And so if this goes wrong, I'm going to end up, we're all going to end up in the pool. (laughs) So so it was a, yeah. It doesn't matter because you you were flying at that point. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And so it was so special. And then right after the, so we had the medal ceremony and then, you know, those swimming suits that we wear take 20 minutes to get into, longer if you've only got one arm. And I couldn't be bothered to get out of the swimsuit, so I raced up to see my family and friends and um, and then went out. We went out um, with them afterwards and I was still in my swimsuit about six hours later. Yeah. I, it, after that, though, I, I, I feel like that after City to Surf. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't blame you in the slightest. What's it like taking a gold medal back to the Athletes' Village? Does everyone kind of gather around and congratulate you? Are you still partying? Yeah, I can't remember what happened with the middle of the night. <laughs> I feel like my mum took it. I actually do remember that my mum must have taken it home in the – no, that can't be right. At one point my mum had it – oh, no, I think she did. I think my mum took it home to Australia because she, she said – she took it in her hand luggage and at one airport security terminal they she put – her bag through the you know security uh, screen, and they took her in for questioning. And they said, you know, what's in your bag? And you know, she was showing them inside the bag, and you know, they were saying, what's inside this box? Because apparently, the gold medal is the same shape, and because it, it's, I think it is actually coated in gold. Yeah. It um it doesn't show up. It looks a lot like a bomb oh. on the security I screen. I just couldn't believe your mum was a swimmer. It's like how offensive! <laughs> I've just won gold at London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean that too. <laughs> Mum, you could have won gold. James is just <laughs> I no comment. Um, before because we went straight to we went straight to gold. Um, but obviously uh, the games before that, Beijing, mm-hmm. you were you were expected to to medal in 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 one, but you you didn't mm-hmm. and. How was that? How was that experience? How do you how do you pick yourself up after that? Yeah, I was ranked first going into the final of the fifty meter freestyle, so I'd qualified first in the heat swim in the morning, mm. and there's, there was probably about eight hours between the heat and the final. And I was nineteen at the time, and just really, even though I'd done a lot of international competition, not on the scale that you know the Beijing Games were, and so I was just very overwhelmed by the whole experience I think and in the eight hours between the heat and the final I remember you know I used to use visualization a lot as a you know technique um, to help with my racing and instead of visualizing the race I was visualizing myself doing the victory lap of honor um, and I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that um, that I I was so confident and so hopeful um, that I almost saw the gold medal as a sure thing and when we walked out on a pool deck I remember feeling a little bit scattered. Like I didn't, you know, when I was going to the marshalling area about 20 minutes before the race, I felt a bit flighty or something and I wasn't really thinking clearly. Uh, and then I was in the marshalling area and I remember chatting to a few people, but I, f- I was probably a little bit hysterical, like a bit hyperactive. And then when I walked out onto pool deck, I kind of felt something really shift and it was all of a sudden like everything was happening in slow motion and I looked up into the stands and there were probably about 20,000 people up there. 
and kind of the enormity of the moment really overwhelmed me and and realizing that I was ranked first and so you know even the cameraman as we walked out of the marshalling area he was following me and it was almost like the target was on my back and everyone else was to there to race me you know that whole that feeling sort of shook me a little bit um and then I almost felt like saying to someone the starter I just need five minutes. Like, can we just yeah. sit out here for five minutes while I gather my thoughts? But all of a sudden we were being, you know, the whistle blew and we hopped up onto the blocks. And I remember looking at the water and it looked a really long way away. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to dive into water that's so far away? I remember that is a very strange thought, but that was – I had this moment of thinking, I'm not sure if I can dive into that water. It's too far away. And then the gum went and I have no memory of the race. Yeah. But it was actually – Mike, Malcolm Gladwell in in one of his books called the, the What the Dog Saw, he talks about um, the difference between choking and panicking. Mm. And I think choking is when you think too much and panicking is when you think too little. And I think I probably choked. I'm not sure. I mean, I've thought about this so many times, but I think I probably choked. And I touched the wall and turned around and I looked at the board and I saw fourth next to my name. And fourth is the worst position. It's, I mean, you would rather come fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth. I mean, fourth is just this feeling that you were so close to, you know, a podium finish. And even though I was chasing gold, I would have been, to be honest, I probably would have been disappointed with silver or bronze slightly, but I still would have been, I think I would have been able to, you know, console myself a little bit and say, oh, well, you know, you're like, this is still a, you know, good result. But fourth was just devastating. And I, had to go and do all these media interviews straight afterwards, um, which, you know, of course you're trained to do um, with media outlets from all around the world. And then so I did that for probably about 15 minutes. And, you know, it was it was sort of interview after interview of people saying, oh, my God, you were ranked first going into the race and you came yeah. fourth. You must be devastated. <laughs> and, you know, having to answer those questions in the direct aftermath of the race is really hard. Yeah. And when you're still kind of coming to terms with what just happened. And, I mean, you see it time and time again. Athletes get so, like, ridiculed for answering the wrong way or sounding um, defeated or there's such an expectation that athletes still sound poised and composed and humble and graceful and all of these things. And, And I don't think people really think about the fact that that was four years of that person's life mm. in the blink of an eye yeah. and it went completely the wrong way and and sort of they're still reeling. So, you know, we're, we're trained with how to answer, but that's just to give people a snapshot of, of you know, it's four years, it's so many injuries, it's four, like hundreds of 4 a.m. starts, sacrifices all over the place, you know, for a lot of people, they've put any kind of study or work on hold. There are so many things that have gone into that one moment and then it's sort of over. Anyway, at the end of the media interviews, I walked into a change room, which was just, you know, nearby and it was empty. And I sat down to kind of gather my thoughts before going and facing the wrath of my coach. But uh, as I was sitting there, another girl walked in and she'd been in that race too. I think she'd come seventh and she had the same disability as me. She was missing her left arm and she she could see that I was upset and she came and sat down next to me and put her arm around me and asked if I was okay. And I said I was fine. I was just disappointed with the race. And I remember she asked me if my family was there 
And I said, yes, my parents and my auntie and uncle are here. And she said, you just competed in the final at a Paralympic Games and your family's here to support you. You should feel so proud of yourself. And I remember thinking, I remember hearing what she said and, and I knew that she was right, but I just felt so disappointed and I mm-hmm. felt like I'd failed. I felt like I, it had been the, the most epic failure of all time. And it wasn't until a couple of days later that I learnt that she had actually acquired her disability in a bus accident a few years earlier and both her parents had been killed in the accident and it was just when i when i learnt that it was just this <laughs> almost it was such a defining moment for me and it made me realize that our failures are though are that that's what our failures are they are our defining moments and i learned you know when i reflect on all the failures i've had so many failures in my life and in my swimming career and outside my swimming career they are the moments that shape you into the person you want to be and they sort of build your character they build your resilience they those moments mean that you ultimately do end up going on to be successful because you're driven by more meaningful and purposeful and powerful things. I and I still really don't know how she's. I mean, I I don't know how she mustered the courage and the grace and the kindness to say that to me on that day, knowing all of the things that she would have been through to be there. You know, mm. losing your arm, losing your parents, and then still continuing on and going to the Paralympic Games, competing, and wow. then having the fortitude to go up to another athlete who probably seemed a little bit like a spoiled brat mm. and and sort of impart that kind of wisdom. But I'm so grateful. I mean, I, she wouldn't know that, you know, I, I, speak, I, I speak about her, you know, quite a lot in the, my, the work I currently do with, you know, I do a lot of motivational speaking. And she would have no idea, you know, the impact she's had on me. But, you know, that's that's the truth as well. So So much of my life has been guided or um, directed by these people who have no idea that they've had such a huge impact on me, these sort of everyday superheroes who just at some point in time said something to me or did something or showed some sort of kindness or, you know, that that sort of slightly changed the trajectory of my life or my thinking and sort of almost they were, they've paved the way for this, you know, where I've ended up. Mm. We haven't even mentioned yet that you actually graduated law just after uh, London, um, London 2012. What has, what opportunities has that opened up for you? Yeah, so I graduated from law school uh, a few months after the London Games. Law, I actually did law and international relations. It's like a double degree. Um, and my first job was, at Allen's, big law firm in Sydney, uh, and I was an M&A lawyer. So I, it kind of became apparent to me. I, I'd done a summer clerkship at that firm uh, in 2010 while I was still competing. And so that was always the goal to sort of start in that role at the beginning of 2013. And <laughs> knowing the hours that lawyers work, um, especially M&A lawyers, I kind of felt like it was going to be impossible for me to continue swimming. Yeah. And I and I don't think that was the only reason why I retired from swimming at that time. I kind of felt like I had I'd had a long career and 
I had achieved the things that I wanted to. I also had and my injury with my shoulder was yeah. quite bad and I didn't want to have ongoing problems after sport, particularly given that I only have one arm. I yeah. felt like it was quite important <laughs> to protect my only good shoulder. Um, and so the sort of retirement from swimming sort of came to a natural end because yeah. I started this role at Allen's. Yeah. And then while I was there – I, I, you know, I, to be honest, I thought that I was going to finish swimming, start as an M&A lawyer, never do, have anything to do with sport again, and that would be it. Um, and I, and for a little while I did that, and then I realized that I really missed sport. And I realized that there were, you know, I thought maybe I could combine my love of sport and my interest in the law into a job. And I found this organization called the Australian New Zealand Sports Law Association, and I started going along to their conferences. They had a, one conference every year. And for the first year, I paid my way to go and see what this was all about. And I realized that you could be lawyers, the lawyer for, you know, the rugby union or rugby league or the AFL. And I thought, oh, wow, that sounds like a perfect role for me. And so, but I wanted to stay. I felt like I, I would add more value in a place like that if I'd had really good training at a, you know, an amazing yeah. law firm like Allen's. So I, I stayed at Allen's for quite a while. And while I was there, I took up some additional roles, um, if, I think the first one I started was with the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, I assisted on some of the arbitrations. I was also the vice president, and still am, of the Australian Swimmers Association, which is like the union that represents all Olympic and Paralympic swimmers in Australia. And they were incredibly rewarding roles. I've always been such a, um, you know, I've loved advocating on behalf of athletes. Um, it kind of you know, when I was an athlete and studying law, I realized that in a lot of cases, it's almost a little bit like athletes are used as pawns mm. in this sort of much bigger game. And they don't often have a lot of say. I was going to say, you must have been in that position for the next Olympics and Paralympics in Rio, was it? Yes. Yes. So I was in, um, so I, in Rio and uh, so then, well, I ended up picking up a whole bunch of different roles. So I was the chair of the Paralympics Australia Athletes Commission. And then in 2015, I started, I left Allens and I started with the Australian Olympic Committee as their uh, lawyer, the legal counsel. And so I was the lawyer for the Australian team at the Rio Games. And um, it was really interesting to be an administrator. It was really yeah, interesting to see it. it. It was, that was the Olympic Games, not the Paralympic Games, but it was really interesting to see games from an administrator's perspective. Um, and, and that was really eye-opening as well, you know, just in a in an entirely different way. It was it was cool to see it from sort of this three hundred and sixty degree view, I guess. Um, and I'm now also the vice president of the board of Paralympics Australia, so it's been interesting to s sort of be able to set the strategy and direction for the future of the Paralympic movement in this mm -hmm. country. Um, but yeah, I mean, particularly these kind of advocacy roles for athletes has, have been very important to me. I think, you know, when I was a athlete, um, you know, para sport wasn't a huge, you know, I mean, it's still got a very long way to go, but there was not the, there's much more visibility and promotion of para sport now than there was when I was competing. And I always felt like it was disappointing and, um, you know, the lack of coverage that para sport received. And so I, I guess since retiring, I've always wanted to be on the side of promoting, you know, equality and 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 enhancing the voice of athletes because every athlete, in para and and able-bodied athletes, are often um, 
sort of the silent voices. Mm. There's, there's, and 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 when I was swimming, and this is absolutely different now. Swimming Australia yeah. and the um, athletes have a good relationship, but when I was swimming, we weren't even considered stakeholders of the sport. So, so it's been a. I think the the things that I saw when I was an athlete. And the lack of television coverage and um, the inequality that existed for para athletes, all of those things really motivated me to become uh, not an advocate, but but more just sort of to work on behalf of athletes. And that's kind of the interest I have in working in sport. Yeah. Um, so you've been working. You're you're still um, vice president of Paralympics Australia. Um, what what work does that entail at the moment as we well we head towards the postponed um, Tokyo Games? But, yeah. Um, what are you working on? It's been a tricky time. Um, unfortunately, so I had a couple of roles. I was also going to be doing the broadcast for Channel mm. Seven for the games, um, and so that was. I mean, personally, that was very disappointing. Um, f- you know, I was really looking forward to that. And from from Paralympics Australia's perspective, we've had to make uh, quite a few redundancies recently, which has been, you know, really heartbreaking. People have given so much to the organisation over so many years. Um, and so that's been very sad and challenging. And also the athletes are all going through different things. You know, athletes are resilient mm. um, and para-athletes are incredibly resilient, but it's it's a challenging period. It's also hard because a lot of them can't even train at the moment. Um, and I think there is still a shadow over whether or not the games will be able to go ahead next year. Um, you know, given, you know, will, will it be possible to bring every country of the world to one location in sort of 12 months time is, is a question that I think a lot of people have. Um, of course, I think athletes are just going, you know, definitely go and, and Paralympics Australia is definitely, um, pushing ahead as if they are going, are going on. Um, it's just been a it's been a bit of a crisis management mode, um, really, for a little while. And speaking with our sponsors, whose all of those agreements were meant to terminate this year, and you know, um, hoping that they will continue on until the games next year. And all the sponsors have been incredible. Um, so managing that process, you know, figuring out the, the there's so many micro decisions <laughs> that have to be made. I mean, even the athletes' village, which they've built. They are apartments that were going to be on, well, that had been on sold and the, uh, the new oh, owners yeah, were course. going to take yeah. ownership right after the games in October. And yeah. so now it's trying to figure out, can they extend, you know, can they delay moving, you know, <laughs> is every single person who's purchased an apartment willing to move yeah. in a year later? I mean, yeah. there's just a million different little tiny things. Yeah. That- Otherwise roommates at that are going to look a, <laughs> yeah. look a lot different uh, to usual. That's right. That's exactly right. So it's it's just kind of managing all these little things that you never have had to think of yeah. before. And also the welfare of athletes, which is, you know, paramount. And we've got an amazing um, welfare team who, who are doing, you know, wonderful things in that regard. So th- there's a lot of different facets that are that continue to be challenging um, and it's so unprecedented. Yeah. I mean, I, actually, when the games were cancelled, you know, the games got cancelled and then a whole bunch of other stuff got cancelled and people were saying, oh, my God, can you believe now, like, Wimbledon's been cancelled? And I was like, I literally can believe anything. Like, everything <laughs> is going to be cancelled. They've cancelled yeah. the Olympics and Paralympics. I mean, it, you know, nothing shocks me anymore. <laughs> Mad Max 4. Almost. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I mean, I was Charlize Theron stunt double. So, I mean, the similarities are striking, aren't they, James? Like. Absolutely. Yeah. They actually hired me first and then they were like, who does she look like? And I was like, Charlie Theron. And they were like, oh, my God, 
You're the spitting image. Did you meet her? (laughs) I don't look anything like Charlize. So it's not a very, I mean, it sounds, it's cool. Listeners, spitting image. (laughs) So I actually, it was fleeting. Um, I was her stunt double. So in Mad Max 4 Fury Road, Furiosa, Charlize Theron, has one arm. And at the time, back in 2009, I remember being contacted about it, they so Kennedy Miller Mitchell, the production company, actually contacted Paralympics Australia. It was the Australian Paralympic Committee at the time, and said, "Do you have an athlete who's got one arm and blonde hair in based in Sydney?" And I was about it. And so they <laughs> called me, and they were like, "Oh, some production companies called us about you being involved in a film." And I thought, "Cool, it'll probably be like a uni production." And then I got this phone call from someone who who sort of explained a little bit more. And for some reason she couldn't tell me much about – she couldn't tell me any. She says, I mean, it's very confidential. And I remember thinking oh, – like a lot of – You can't tell me anything. <laughs> 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 I guess this is goodbye. <laughs> I remember – but I thought to myself, oh, God, she's like very hoity-toity for just a university production. Yeah. <laughs> like how confidential need it be? Um, but then she said, I can tell you the – the budget of the film. I don't know why that was relevant, but it was like some ridiculous thing, like $200 million or something. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) And so, so then I thought, gosh, this is some big deal. And then it was a couple of weeks later. She said, you're actually Charlize Theron stunt double. And I then was like, okay, now is the point where I have to convince everyone that having one arm is so different to having two arms that, Charlize and I need to be in the same space a lot. Like maybe we should share a trailer. <laughs> and I remember I did convince someone of it. There was there's this uh, job title called a dramographer and they're, they're responsible for working on the relationship between characters in a film. So like say if you and I were meant to be siblings in a movie, like trying to work on the chemistry to make us seem like we are brother and sister. And he was the guy. I was like, okay, mate, I need it. you need to understand it's like psychologically so different having one arm. Like yeah. I don't think Charlize Theron could fully appreciate it unless she spent a huge amount of time with me. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Anyway, we didn't spend that much time together at all. Um, and, and you were like, next job? Yes. Yeah. I need you to make me feel like Tom Hardy's uh, girlfriend. Right, is exactly. Yeah, George Clooney. <laughs> but I do remember thinking, this is the start. I was like, there are so many options for amputees out there. Like, I was like, I can be in war films, like medical dramas. Like, they would need stunt doubles all the time, yeah. but it wasn't to be. It was very cool, though. So I did uh, about six months of Muay Thai training mm-hmm. um, to sort of, which is fight training. Yeah. Um, which was actually really good cross training. This is while I was competing. It was while, it was really good cross training for my swimming. Of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> How many more things were you doing <laughs> yeah, when you went to be in the pool? <laughs> yeah. um, so I did Muay Thai training and then, I mean, it was even cool like to see all the cars and trucks mm. and things. They were all out in Villawood, out in Western Sydney. So the film was meant to take, the whole film was meant to be set in Broken Hill, but we had had so much rain. It was 2000. By this stage, it was about 2011, yeah. and we'd had so much rain that Broken Hill looked like the middle of Wales, and so they needed it to look post-apocalyptic, and so they ended up moving the film to Africa, and oh, I wow. didn't go at that point because yeah. I was still swimming, and you know, so I, I didn't like see the thing through to completion. But it was, yeah, it was very cool. It's also very random on my CV. It's like lawyer, 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 advocate, advocate. Charlie's Theron stunt double man. Next it's, it's pretty cool though. <laughs> yeah, it's a good. <laughs> it is pretty cool. <laughs> Who do you think will play me? In, uh, uh, Brad, who would Brad be Pitt. my stunt double? Brad Pitt. 
Brad Pitt. Mm. That's very, very generous. Mm -hmm. Brad Pitt, played by Jonah Hill. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) So, restrictions. (laughs) Restrictions are being lifted. How, How are you embracing that? So my grandma, who I was very close to, she used to tell me that you always need All you need is someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. And so I write those things down every evening. Mm. And in the middle of this, like when we were back in late March and it was like weeks ahead, I I was really thinking, my God, like what do I have to look forward to? And Mm. because I'm very busy, you know, I've got lots on, you know, everyone does, but I really, I really, um, I get a lot of energy from being with people. I get a lot of energy from my work. Mm. And I found it really tricky for, for a period of time. And then I just thought, well, you know, there are little things every day to look forward to. So having a coffee in the sun or, um, you know, going for a walk with my daughter, having a dance party in the living room, which Mm. happened almost every afternoon. So, uh, you know, I I kind of, the the slower pace, I don't know if it suits me long-term, but I think it was a good thing or it is a good thing for me to slow down slightly. I probably, um, I've been moving at such a speedy pace for such a long time and most of my work now, I mean, (laughs) my friends have been so lovely. People have been, you know, saying, oh gosh, you know, my work is mostly international travel and speaking at very large conferences. And friends are like, oh, God, they're like the last two things that are going to come back. And that's the reality. So that's really – I find that sad because I love what I do. Mm. Um, but it's also meant – you know, I've kind of seen it as an opportunity to be creative. I'm trying to figure out ways to do things digitally. I'm speaking at virtual conferences and things, which is not the same, mm. but um, still enjoyable. You know, this sort of thing, like coming on podcasts and stuff, which I'm loving – I started writing a book, so oh, wow. we'll see how that goes. <laughs> That'll hopefully be published in the next few decades. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I kind of um, I'm, I'm looking to do a rebrand and, you know, figure out. I, I think I might try and do some more work with athletes. I do a lot of um, – I'm passionate about career transition for athletes. There's yeah. too many athletes who do their sport and only their sport for the duration of their career and don't focus on life after sport until it's thrust upon them. Yeah. And that's often when they're close to 30 and they have a really hard time. Um, And so having like a dual track career is really important. So, um, you know, I've, I've, I did a seminar last week with athletes um, because this is a good opportunity for them while they cannot train or, you know, focus on um, it's a good opportunity for them to focus on life after sport and I think also athletes just don't really realize all of the valuable skills that they have. Yeah. You know, they think, oh, God, all these people out there who become lawyers. I mean, I remember when I was when I was interning, when I was doing my summer clerkship at Allen's, so I'd do the summer clerkship and then go to swimming training, and all the athletes were like, oh, my God, is it like suits? And I was <laughs> like, no. And no one at the law firm thinks that their life is so cool. Like, you know, I, I was like, they think your life is cool. Like athletes don't think that their life is that extraordinary. Mm. Um, they think, oh, wow, it's intimidating. This whole like fancy lawyer scene is intimidating. Um, They don't see all the value, uh, all the the skills that they have and that that, that is not that scary or, yeah. you know, that, that that is actually really attainable. They almost, they, you know, it sounds like they almost view it as a different world. Yeah. And they don't necessarily know how to connect it to. So yes. I think that is, you know, I, I also work in um, law in my day job. Yes. And, there aren't many Harvey Specters and there's no princesses 
No, there's 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 very few. There's a there's some who think they are Harvey Specters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. princesses (laughs) or Harvey Specters. I hope they don't listen to this. Um, But I'd like to say thank you very much for for spending this time with me chatting. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. It always is. Um, Thank you very much, and no doubt we'll speak very soon. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. You've been listening to MISC with me, James Hill, and my guest, Annabelle Williams.